Some of you may have noticed that we were away, some of us in the leadership were away last weekend. Anybody notice? Anyone? Thank you, Lloydy. Thanks for a few people that noticed that we were away. And um, we were actually in the, in the UK um, this, the weekend that just passed. I actually ministered in um, Liberty Church in Newport in Wales. You got, some of you remember Heath and Leah, they lead that church. We've part, been partnering with them for a while and had, honestly had an amazing, amazing Sunday with them. But the, the few days before that, we were together with the elders and elders from around the world, actually um, quite a few from um, South Cal, which is Southern California, for those that aren't in the know, and um, also guys from the UK, some from South Africa, and um, we were gathered there as part of this apostolic group that we have joined called Genesis Collective, which we are actually forming called Genesis Collective. And... Uh, tell you one of the highlights for me, there were 50 of us there, that was the limit that we placed on the time, we actually left in one lounge, there was some sort of supernatural fitting in going on, I don't know how we fit it in there, but uh, we, we met in one lounge, um, various people did preaching, we had the most incredible times of worship, there were times of um, confession, of, uh, there, is, there is something incredibly beautiful about what God is beginning here. And the reason why I wanted to share something of that with you is because it's, it's got to flow down and impact all of us. This is not something we as the eldership are a part of and the church just kind of relates to it. This is something the church does. We are partnering together with other churches. And so some of you will remember Tyler Cochran, the um, blonde uh, guy that led worship a few times here. He's come with Chris three times he's been with to us now in the last year. And um, they, Tyler's a part of the church there for, that Chris leads. And, they, and he's partnering with us. And part of what God's wanting to release in this season is this partnership around the world with these different churches. And something actually doing something incredible. What I love about it is that Christ is at the very center of it all. One uh, evening, we, one morning, in fact, we had a time of worship led by um, Dana and Stu Dooley, a um, couple in Christmas Church as well. Looks like there's too many worship leaders. Maybe they start throwing some across here to add to ours. And, um, and that was... Commended them off as the most Christ-centered time of worship I've um, I've been in for a long time, and uh, if that marks what we're doing, and if that begins to um, pour into us and pour from us into us as a church, and from us as a church into the nations of the world, then I'm a hundred percent in favor of that. So, just for a minute, each of us, uh, both uh, the elders, to come up and to share the highlights, I suppose, of that time, and then I'm going to share the word. Uh, so I think for me, the thing that really uh, stood out or the thing that God really reaffirmed in my heart again and again is this idea that us here at Well of Life, as part of Genesis Collective, have been strategically placed to be a base church into the nations. And what just, I just felt God through every session and through the worship was reminding me again and again is that, that we're here for a reason. This church is here for a reason. But like Rob said, it's not just a select few, but actually this adventure is open to everyone. And we just spent some time dreaming and talking about some of the, the plans and the visions of what could come. And the key thing I loved about it was, again and again, it wasn't, oh, the elders will go to this place, or the lead elder will go do this. But it was this, let's, let's invite the church to come and get involved. And so I'm just incredibly excited that you are here for a reason. We are here for a reason. And that reason will be to go out into the nations. I'm normally the guy who takes like three chapters to speak one sentence worth of stuff. But uh, I mean, when Rob talked about this, this is one image that just kind of flashed across my mind. For a long time, I kind of felt personally a little kind of dry on the inside. And I felt that this was also how it was kind of for us as well of life, that we were a little alone. Uh, we, we do have many churches that we support, and, but it always felt like they look to us. It was where do we look? And uh, so the picture I had in my mind was of this coal that had fallen out of the fireplace. There's a spark in it. There's life in it, but it was alone. And kind of it felt like someone took a pair, a pair of tongs and just put us back in the fire. And, and I'm trusting that this time uh, is the beginning of something of us coming into a fireplace, uh, a partnering of peers in a sense, where we get to do things together, and that it results in this amazing fire that takes place. AJ, it's good to have you back in the house, bro. Isn't it good? So, um, uh, Chantal and Karen, why don't you come up here, please? 
I wonder, um, you guys know Chantal and Karen really well, and you're something of their story. Um, Chantal's not been drinking a lot of beers. Well, no, I don't know if she has or not, but she is, uh, that's not the reason for her swollen um, tummy there. Chantal is with child. Isn't that wonderful? Um, I, uh, I love Karen and Chantal. I really do. And uh, they have been uh, amazing friends uh, to us, are amazing friends to us, but that isn't coming to mind, obviously. Um, they've been through an amazing um, journey, um, which they've shared. Uh, Karen and Chantal, I think you know their story. Most of you do anyway. Um, they shared it publicly with us, and then in this like weird way, it was like the very thing that felt like God's answer to their prayers was pulled out from underneath them, and there was both a sense of, and I know they would use it, but, but um, a sense almost of humiliation of where is what happened to our trust and all those things, that, and that happens to us when we put our trust in God, and we'll be careful, you know, and um, they came and said to me, look, earlier, at the end of last year, hey, we need a bit of a break from eldership just to sort through some things. We just feel like we're not, um, we're not quite where we need to be in, in our, we just need to um, allow God into some of the spaces in our marriage, and, and apparently it works because Chantel's pregnant. And, uh, <laughs> and um, but there's something fresh has come upon them. And I say this for two reasons. One is, um, there is a weight of leadership. It, it just is a reality. Paul speaks about burning inwardly when somebody else sins or being again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is fully formed in you. There is an invisible pressure in being in leadership. And so it's not necessarily because you've, um, I don't know, you've got a lot of meetings or a lot of counseling to do. Holy moly, that can take its toll. But that's not the main thing. It's this, it's this weight. Of, and uh, Karen and Chantal have carried that. They really have. They've carried it well. Um, uh, Heron's work has, has really um, put him in a difficult position. Now he's on a shift work where he has no control over it. And there'll be months where he's not able to be in church for three out of the four weeks and things like that. And so, But as they've been on this, this um, sabbatical, They've still been in church, and he's obviously still working in his, in his job and stuff like that. But as they've been in sabbatical from eldership, I've really seen some of this fresh and light come upon them, you know. And we had a chat, um, I don't know, three or four weeks ago. We sat in our home, and we really felt like, actually, this is not the right time for them to come and step back into eldership again. But actually, that uh, Chantel and Karen should have their baby. And uh, in this season where they've just got the space around them, they love this church. Uh, they tell us all the time. I believe them, and uh, and they uh, they love being a part of the team. This is totally neutral. There's no sin. There's no offence. There's none of those things. I want to be one thousand percent pure in that thing. And um, but we're in agreement. But we think this is good. We're a family, and we don't we don't operate organisationally. And so um, effectively, what we're doing, they've been um, in a sense stepped aside from eldership for four months, and now they're going to step off eldership. It's not a demotion because coming to eldership is not a promotion. They're just stepping out of a role for a season. And um, and I'm convinced, I've said this to Karen and I believe that there is a call of God upon their lives to elder. And I believe the call upon their lives, and um, I'm not sure they haven't necessarily agreed with this with me yet, but this is my sense, that they will one day lead um, and maybe plant a church. And so I have faith. I have a huge expectation of what God will do through them. And I'm trusting and praying that the work situation changes and We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it down the line. The, the, the bridge we're crossing right now is to celebrate and honor them for who they are and the season they've carried this eldership weight. And so I'm going to ask you to do something for me. Why don't you stand again, please? And uh, you know that we can minister to people in many different ways. You can, um, you can give them money. That's one way. <laughs> Karen's nodding inside. That's not what I'm suggesting here. You can lay your hands on them, pray. You can encourage them. Um, one of the ways, honestly, that I've been ministered to before is through um, the clapping of hands. Can you believe it? Actually, God used these things to minister His grace over, over people's lives. And I want you to affirm them. In a moment, we're just going to thank them and affirm them by, uh, by clapping our hands to them and applauding them and just loving upon them. So why don't you do that, please?
Why don't you extend your hands to them? Hey, Father, we, we love you. And because we love you, we love your children, Lord God. And we love this couple, Lord God, with really, Lord God, we, with, with such a deep love in our hearts. We thank you for their, um, there's no shadows in their hearts, Lord God. No, no agendas, Lord God. They, they live for you and for your glory. And we pray for them in this next season. We thank you, Lord God, that, um, that in the kingdom of God, you move us around, Lord God, according to your will. Um, that encompasses both your kingdom purposes and our well-being, Lord God. And we thank you for this next season. We thank you for the life that it's going to bring to them, for this baby that's going to come, little Robert, Lord God, when he comes along. We pray that you would um, bless them, Lord God, and little Robert as well, Lord God, as he, as he comes into this world and uh, is an incredible sense of blessing to them. And we, we thank you and commend them to you, Lord God, for the work that they have done, for the weight they've carried. But Lord, we thank you that they are going to continue to carry weight and continue to love your church and continue to um, care for your people. And we pray that there just, there's almost like a fresh anointing that will come upon them for this season ahead. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Beautiful. Okay. So uh, we're going to be done by 11.30. I believe we went on a little bit last week, which was, uh, um, I, I actually want to, I love the fact that the testimonies were great, but I do want to apologize that Alicia went on as long as it did, and uh, it was not a normal thing. So this week, I'm preaching on this title, Paradise Lost. We're starting a series that's a journey to the cross, and you can say, you, if you're uh, alert as to what's coming on around us, you'll be aware of why, because in two weeks' time, it's... Good Friday and Easter, and uh, so we are, we, are, we are journeying to the cross, we're going to get to the Easter, and then after Easter we're going to do, we're going to preach through the book, some parts of the book of Galatians, and take us too long as we'll preach through it completely, but um, we decided to start where the journey began, which is actually with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the fall, and the problem with preaching something like this, and I was, as I was preparing it this week, I was um, struck by how theological this can be. And I know when you say the word theology, some people's eyes roll back and they just sit there and say, well, I'm going to get 20 minutes preach now. If that's you, the thing about this is that it's not just theological. It's, it's a mystical and wonderful story as well. It, it, it actually goes from one side to the other. And, and it's how do you make sure that we get the theology and, our, and the, the understanding we need to have from these great texts and how do we... Um, not just drift into this as if it's some amazing story, but not true. In fact, one of the headings that I had, um, but I'm not going to actually cover it, is, is this true? Is the story of Adam and Eve true? And I don't know what your stance of it is. I believe Adam and Eve, and I believe this is necessary for Scripture to hold together. Adam and Eve, were a, they were not a symbol of somebody else. They were um, true. A human, they were two human beings, the first human beings. They were placed in a place called the Garden of Eden, and they actually did sin, and they actually are our ancestors, and this isn't some mythology. But because the story is so grand, it is um, uh, not surprising to me that somebody has taken and, and written an amazing story from it. And uh, one person that's probably done it most famously is John Milton, who wrote, over 300 years ago wrote this poem called Paradise Lost from which I've taken my title. And uh, it's not just a poem. I didn't realize that this word, was a, this word was a literary term. It's an epic poem. It's an epic poem, which means that it's a flippin' long poem. That's what it is. It's just really long. And I don't know if you've ever read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales when you were at school. Did anybody have to suffer like that with me? Anybody read that? Nobody read that? You. I thought I was the only one that ever did it. I remember reading this thinking, why didn't they just speak English? I don't know what's going on. It's all this old English. And, and as you read some sections of Paradise Lost, the language can be quite difficult to navigate. But the story is indeed an epic one. And John Milton starts the story by talking about um, with, uh, with Satan who's on the surface of a boiling lake of lava in hell. As he wakes up there, which is obviously not a great place to be. He's in, he realizes all sorts of trouble. He's been thrown out of heaven for his rebellion against God. And he, he's, right, he's there with his right-hand man, and he, he gets him up, and they, they go to, they, they call together a council of all the, the, the fallen angels, 
at a place called Pandemonium. How's that for a great place to uh, for the devil to start his journey here? And at this meeting of these fallen angels, as, as John Milton tells the story through this epic poem, they decide that they're gonna. They'd heard about a prophecy of a new um, world that would be made and a new people that would be formed, and they make the decision that they're gonna bring down Adam and Eve to fight God. And then the poem shifts the scenery to heaven where we encounter God, the Father and God the Son. And, um, and in, in heaven, the, the God's having this conversation about the plans of Satan because God knows everything at all times. And uh, he, 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 as he's speaking in heaven, he says that Adam and Eve will fall to their temptation. They will end up eating the for, forbidden fruit from the garden. And um, the Son volunteers to be the one that goes to rescue them. And so God's plan of redemption begins to be put in place. It's the next book. There's 12 books in this, uh, in this epic poem. That's why it's an epic poem. And um, in the, the, the scene then changes to the Garden of Eden, where Satan comes along. And for the first time, we see um, Adam and Eve as they are seen through his eyes. And um, God sends an angel at this time to go warn them about Satan and about his strategy. So the angel's name in the story is Raphael, and Raphael comes to him and warns him about what's happening. And despite the warning about a week later, the devil comes, disguised as a serpent that comes up to them, to Eve, and uh, he, he, um, he convinces her. You, you're just following me on the slide, just a, a nice presentation. There we go. You can go to the next one. And uh, I, lo- I love this, uh, I love this uh, quote from his poem. He says, Knowledge forbidden, suspicious, reasonless. Why should their Lord envy their lack? Can it be sin to know? Can it be dead? And you kind of just imagine Satan coming to Eve and whispering into her ears like this as he tempts her. And she succumbs to the temptation and she goes to the forbidden tree and she eats of the fruit. And then she persuades her husband to do the same thing. As a result of their sin, the gates of hell are now wide open. And so sin and death, who are actually characters in the poem, and that's why when we were singing tonight, you've overcome sin and the grave. We've, we've silenced sin. We've silenced the grave. Meaning something. In this, in this poem, they are actually characters. And they, because the gates open now, they, they build a highway from hell to the earth so that sin and death can have free access to the earth. Satan returns to hell triumphant because of what he's accomplished. So he, him and his angels in the poem return to serpents as a punishment for the evil that they've done. As for Adam and Eve, God makes them leave the Garden of Eden. He introduces death, labor pains, and all sorts of stuff that's not good. And, um, and before they leave, though, God sends the angel Michael and gives Adam a vision of the future. It's kind of like this um, history lesson in advance about what will happen, about um, the consequences of the sin, about humanity until the time of the flood and how God will destroy everything and uh, Noah, uh, start again with Noah. And after this, they leave in what is um, recognized as one of the saddest moments in English literature. They, they are put out of the Garden of Eden, and yet as they leave, it's not just sadness, but sadness mingled together with hope. Through her rashness in eating the forbidden fruit, Eve has lost everything, but from her will come the promised seed who will restore everything. Adam and Eve walk out the eastern gates of the garden, and as they go out, they say this. This is um, John Milton again. They're looking back. All the eastern side beheld a paradise so late their happy sleep. Waved over by that flaming brand, the gate, with dreadful faces thronged and fiery arms. Some natural tears they dropped, but wiped them clean. The world was all before them, where to choose, their place of rest and providence their guide. They, hand in hand, with wandering steps and slow, through Eden, took their solitary way. Father, I pray that as we get into this story of the fall, this account, this this true account of the fall, I pray that you would cause our hearts to be open to the truth of your gospel, Lord God, and uh, to understand our true state and our true need for salvation and for the Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read a few verses there and then uh, jump straight into it. From verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field 
that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruits of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took off its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. I'm going to skip over um, God confronting Adam, then hiding from God, and him confronting Adam, and then cursing Satan, and then cursing man and then woman. And we'll jump to verse 23, sorry, verse 22. It says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And as I was preparing this, two questions came to my mind. One is, what does it matter? How does it matter to us that Adam sinned? Here's some guy thousands of years ago that sinned. What does it matter to us? Not just to us, the church, but what does it matter to us, um, mankind in general, about some guy that sinned all that time ago. And secondly, if the results of that sin are as disastrous as I'm going to show you they are, then how come we can have any hope? How come Adam and Eve walked out of that garden with, with even the, the hints of a hope there? How come they weren't utterly hopeless having seen what they've done? As I was going through this and I was reading through Genesis chapter 3, I felt like God takes me to Romans chapter 1, and I've never seen this before, but there's this incredible parallel between um, the specific sin and fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and this general um, description of the plight of fallen man in Romans chapter 1. In Romans 1 verse 19, um, it kind of sets the scene for who God's talking about. It says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, this is fallen mankind, because God has shown it to them. And that's us. When we, we, we're not, it's not like, um, you know, we were born smelling of roses. We, we are, we are, and I'll show you this in a moment, we are sinners. And so when we speak about them, it's, it's us. There's a, there's, the, the difference between those that are followers of Christ and those that are not followers of Christ is exactly that. It's Christ that makes the difference. But we are, without Christ, we're all them. And the rest of the verses as we go through this, I'm going to go through quickly now, I'm going to go table up and I'm going to show you the parallel. Whenever I speak about a they or a theirs, it's speaking about fallen mankind, the people of all generations. So look at this. Genesis 3 verse 5. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. This is the devil speaking. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then Romans 1.22 says, They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the mortal man. Now, we were created in the image of God. We already had the glory of God. We already, in inverted commas, like God. We didn't need to eat of a fruit to become like God. We were already like Him, created in His image. We were like mirrors without stains or blemishes that when the glory of God shone on us, we reflected it perfectly. And instead, we chose to, to, be, to, um, to exchange that, the glory of God, for the, for the, how does he describe it, the images resembling mortal man. We don't even end up looking like we're supposed to be. We become these, 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 um, these blurred, marred images that God had intended us to be. And so instead of being um, honorable and loving and kind and generous and faithful and all the things that God had made us in the Garden of Eden, we become these fallen human beings. I know he's referring to actual statues and things like that, but I think there's a picture here of what it means for us to choose something less than what God intended for us. Genesis 3 verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. 124, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. 3.6, the tree was desired to make one wise. 122, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Chapter 3 verse 4 and 5, the temptation. Did God really say? And then 
if the devil goes on and he's so clever, he goes, did God really say that? And he goes, oh, no, he, he definitely said that. I mean, I think I've, you know, I've got a recording on my phone. And he said that. He definitely said, I've got the Bible. He said it. And then the devil goes, you know what? He's actually lying. He's actually lying. And you know why he's lying to you? Because he wants to keep you from living the best life that you can live. He's lying to you about whatever. And we can apply this to our lives today. He's lying to you about the pursuit of money. He's lying to you about making money your goal or, or, the, or sexual pleasure your goal or whatever it is. He's lying to you because actually if you pursue it, you're going to be happier. You're going to be more fulfilled. That's what the devil tells us. And then 125, Romans says they exchange the truth about God for a lie. They exchange the truth that God is, is, is unable to lie. They exchange the truth that he, is, he seeks our well-being, that he is a selfless God, most evident upon the cross. He is selfless. When he speaks to us, it is for our well-being. There's nothing God commands us to do that is not ultimately for our benefit and our good. And then chapter 3, verse 6, says, And she gave some to her husband who was with her, chopped, and he ate. Why do I call him a chop? Because he was there the whole time. He was put in that garden to, to guard not just the garden, but everything in the garden, including his wife. And then Romans 1.33 says that, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So here's why Adam's sin matters. Because every son or daughter of Adam that has come from his loins from that original time is born with a bent towards sin. We lean towards sin, no matter who we are. And I'm going uh, to just have a summary that just highlights these points as I go through. And the first point of my summary is this, that through Adam... We all inherit a sinful nature which issues or results in personal sin and guilt. In Romans 1, Paul is teaching that man does evil because he is evil. And then Romans 5, which I'm going to get to in a second, he, uh, he tells us the root cause of sin is what happens in Eden. And I think that's why you can see this parallel. Paul's saying there's this brokenness in our world. It's just sinners has entered in and there's this brokenness here and the results actually go, the reason for it, the roots of it goes back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. And then uh, we, we as human beings commit sins because we are sinners by nature, a nature that we inherited from Adam. When Adam sinned against God, something fundamental changed in his human nature. He, he was one thing and then when he sinned, there was a fundamental change of nature. And that is passed down generation to generation so that every child that is born inherits this Adamic nature. That, that leaning towards sin, that propensity to sin is transmitted from generation to generation. And as mankind has spread out and, and occupied all the avenues of the earth, whether we are Indian or African or American or European or whatever it is, we have the same heritage and as sin goes to all. And so sin entered the world. Romans 5 verse 12 in the New Living Translation says this, When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And what we have here, friends, is a profound spiritual framework. Everything is a mess. Now Paul goes on at the end of Romans in verse, verses 29 to 31 to describe our sinfulness. He says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. So just think of this. Evil, covetousness, and malice. They, remember who they are, are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I read this list to Linda yesterday, and she goes, oh, what a list. I said, that's you, babe. Like an encouraging husband, eh? That's what when you're married to a preacher. So that's you, babe. That's me. That's who we are. If we had long enough to live, there's not a single one of those sins that wouldn't manifest fully in our lives if we had long enough to live. The only thing that redeems us and changes us, which we'll come to later, is Christ. And so back to our summary, through Adam we all inherit the sinful nature, which issues in personal sin and guilt. So every one of us is certain that we are sinners. I think it was Chesterton who said that the, in, that the depravity of man, which is that we are born sinful, is the most empirically verifiable fact on earth. So it's, you can verify it empirically when you're able to do a test. So if you want to 
check whether this medicine makes you well. You take 50 people's flu and you give them all the medicine and if 49 of them are better, then you go, we've encouraged you, check whether it's a sample size of people. Well, we've got the sample size of all people in all generations and we are sinners from birth. There is not one generation that has led us to believe something different. There is not one race of man that has led us to believe something different. No technology, no philosophy can save us from it. And in fact, our sinfulness has caused a brokenness in the world around us. And you don't just have to go look at Scripture to see those examples, looking at the world before the flood or um, Sodom and Gomorrah. You have to go to some cities in the world where we live, where young girls are kidnapped from their families and sold into sexual slavery. And, and in numbers that the world has never known before, where grown men are going to places to go and have sex with children or look at pornography or, or, or greed causes genocide in nations so that somebody else can have a higher bottom line. You don't, you don't need a degree to see that this is true. The second thing that we see is that Adam acted as our official representative when he cast his vote against God. He's feeling uplifted, stirred up at this moment. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. One of the things that's clear from Genesis and from Paul's um, take of the fall in Romans chapter 1 is that God sees us as one entity in him. He sees us as a single group of people with Adam as our federal head. I, I love this um, scripture in, in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I've, 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 I've long loved it because of what it contains. Listen to this. It says, we might even say that these Levites, and so you remember there were 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites were one of them, and they were set aside to be the priestly tribes. So all other tribes did their normal stuff. The Levites were the priests. We might say that these Levites, the one who collect the tithe, paid a tithe to Melchizedek when the ancestor Abraham paid a tithe to him. So I need to explain this. So um, Genesis talks about a time where Abraham and Lot were living in the, the land that was the promised land but not yet occupied by them. Lot goes to live near Sodom, which was this go-to place, like the red light district of the promised land. And um, one day some enemy sweeps in and takes and plunder and the people of Sodom. And in this mess, um, Lot and his family are killed, chapter 12. So Abraham, because he's got his own army, as any patriarch should have, he's got, he's got his own soldiers, he heads off into battle, and he rescues these people, really is rescuing Lot. And he comes back, and he's met by the king of Sodom, and the king says to him, look, you keep the plunder, just give me the people. What a satanic strategy. And the devil wants to say that to us. You can keep your money, just give me the people. And we've got to operate in the opposite way. But what happened is, He's then met by another king, the king of Salem, which means peace. And his name is Melchizedek. He's a priest, the Bible says. And Hebrews chapter 7 spends the whole time comparing Melchizedek or saying that Christ is, in, is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek, it says he had no genealogy. There was no, he, there's no list of his ancestors. We don't know where he came from. He obviously did have a mom and dad. It's just not listed anywhere. And he points to the fact that, that he's, a, he's, a, he's a picture of a shadow of Christ. So when we speak about Melchizedek, we're speaking about Christ. Abraham comes and he takes, of that plunder, he takes 10% and he gives it to Melchizedek. He pays the tithe. And so hundreds of years later, Moses comes along and, and, and God gives Moses the law. The Levites are set aside and they begin to collect the tithes from the people. Then it says here, For although Levi wasn't born yet, the seed from which he came was in Abraham's body when Melchizedek collected the tithe from him. In other words, when Levi, the Levites collected the tithe, Levi himself and his descendants, they would collect the tithe. When that tithe was sown, and it was to enable them, the priestly tribe, to be able to live, and so there's the living part. But it was actually sown unto God to keep the temple running. And when that money was given, it wasn't given to the Levites, it was given to the Levites, who then, like, if you can kind of imagine going through the generations like this, it ends up in the hands of Abraham, who gives it to Melchizedek, who's a type of Christ. And so that's interesting for us, even when we bring our tithes and offerings in the morning, you're giving it to the church, but it comes through the church, actually, through um, all the way to Abraham, to Melchizedek, who is Christ. Our tithes and offerings actually go to Christ. And Paul uses the same principle here in discussing Adam. He was the ancestor of every human being. Adam's sin and his guilt are our sin and our guilt because we were in him when he sinned. And so, a summary goes on to say that one offense by one man made all the world guilty of sin. 
The resulting guilt of Adam's original sin is imputed to each of us with death, our shared inheritance. There are three great imputations, moments where something is imparted, imputed rather, in Scripture. And imputed just means that I, I um, put something onto your account um, as if it were yours. I, you are um, uh, represented as um, something being done by you or possessed by you. So, an, an example in this instance is Adam's sin becomes Saj's sin. Adam's guilt becomes Saj's guilt. And you might say, well, well Rob, that's, I mean, that's pretty unfair. To, I mean, in, the, in our modern mind, it's like, like we, we hate that idea. But look at Romans 5 verse 12. Um, it says, when Adam's sin, sin entered the world, Adam's sin brought death, and so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And so what happens is, we die because of Adam's sin. Now, the, the modern man objects to this because he said, let, let, let me be judged on my sin. I don't want to be judged on somebody else's sin. And the truth is, you're no better off on that piece anyway, because as I said at the beginning, we've all sinned. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin for everyone is death. But he goes on to speak about the fact that um, in verses 13 and 14, that um, even those that, that lived up until the time of the law died. Even though there was no law in place yet for them to break it, they didn't eat to the fruit. They didn't break any of God's laws yet since the law, God hadn't yet given his commands, and yet they still died. And Paul's making the point that uh, this death enters in because we are the children of Adam. There is no one that is sinless, and God counts us all guilty. And because of this, death enters in. And we see this first in Adam. When he sinned, he immediately died spiritually. At the age of 930, it tells us in Genesis 5.5, he died physically. And as best we can discern, Adam was brought to faith. Even the old covenant believers, the old Testament believers are saved through Jesus Christ ultimately, but he's brought to faith and thus escapes eternal death. Now since Adam, all people are spiritually dead when they are born, which leads to physical death and then to eternal death unless we too find a means by which our eternal judgment can be averted. John and I, John Watkinson, um, he's a little bit mental um, when it comes to speed. Um, I had a motorbike a little while ago in Dubai. It's a GS 1200, quite a big engine, and John had some sort of superbike from it. It was some Ducati, I think it was. And so um, when they were building Al Maktoum Airport, they had, um, had this massive road built next to the, the shell of the airport, but it wasn't an official road yet. So it had no road signs on it with the speed limit. And it had no speed camera. And so you know what that means. So, so John takes it out there, and we get on his motorbike, and we, we clean out the exhaust, let me just put it that way. We went way beyond any speed limit that would eventually be instituted. But we weren't breaking the law. We weren't doing anything wrong. Well, we're fine. There's no speed limit on the road. You can't tell me that I've done anything wrong because there's nothing, no laws to break. And it's this point that, that, um, that Paul makes. He's like, now, even if you don't know the law of God, even if you, there's no commands that, that you understand or know about, that you, uh, he tells us that our conscience judges us. But the fact is, it doesn't matter whether our conscience judges us or not, because we share in the guilt of Adam from the very beginning. Every single human being that ever lived is sinful by nature, yes, which means we will sin, but it's, it carries the guilt of sin upon their own lives. And we need a Savior. Bad thing. In fact, it's so bad that you have to wonder, as I said at the beginning, why Adam and Eve left with any hope from the Garden of Eden. Now I'm landing with this. This will take me a, a few minutes. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. This wonderful prophetic text of God's curses, um, issues his curse, and mixed in there is the promise of redemption. The Lord said to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And he's talking about the Christ that is to come. And it's because of this thing called imputation that seems so unfair, doesn't it? I mean, let's be honest. It seems unfair that Adam's sin is counted against me. But it's because of this very um, truth that our our second Adam can come and replace Adam as the special head. And that's why when we come to Christ, 
we die with Him upon the cross. We've done our, our, our lineage to Adam is broken off, and we are born again to Christ, who becomes now our new spiritual head. And so there are two races of man upon the earth today. Those that have the headship of Adam still over them, and those that have the headship of Christ over them. And the Bible speaks in Corinthians about the other two imputations. The first is our sin to Jesus Christ, who bore sin's penalty on the cross. So God took all of our sin and imputed it to Christ. And so Christ hangs upon the cross. It wasn't like Jesus said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand in the place of... It says in, in, in Corinthians, he actually became... Him who knew no sin became sin for us. We, our sin was imputed to him. And then it goes on to say that we might become... We might become the righteousness of God. And then the righteousness of Christ is then imputed onto us. And when Adam and Eve were in the garden, there's this, this promise of this, this Messiah that will come that is going to deliver us. And that's why we call this the journey to the cross. See, we cannot understand why the cross is needed until we can understand the fullness of our fall before God and what was lost. And so I, I mentioned that earlier. I said the unbelieving man is spiritually dead when he is born, which leads to physical death and then to eternal life and less. Unless we receive the remedy for spiritual death, which is eternal life. The gift of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is suffering and crucified Savior. And I, when I read that, my, my heart cries, Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. And that's why understanding our fallenness is essential for us to understand the cross. There's some people that come to Jesus, and it's almost as if they're saying, Lord, I'm going to do you a favor and join your team. We are lost. We are broken. We are under that headship of Adam and suffer all of the guilt and the shame and the condemnation and the wrath that is due because of our association there. But we have the opportunity to die with Christ and come into the headship of Christ now. Born again. Born not of the will of man, but born um, again in faith through God the Father. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to explore that. Why don't the worship team please come up? So I told you 11.30. We're going to explore this very thing. Next week, Matt is going to share on Jesus as the scapegoat from Leviticus chapter 16. The week after that, I'm going to preach on Jesus as the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. We're going to do that on Good Friday. Then on Resurrection Sunday, we're going to preach on the resurrection. And then after that, we're going to, we're going to dive into the book of Galatians and starting at the point of, of uh, the child of the promise and uh, talk about why the law was put in place at all. Why did we need the law? What is the purpose of the law? And how we are no longer under the law and what it means to live free of that law and under the new covenant. And I really trust that you come to a place where both you um, understand the fullness of what, something of the fullness, I don't know if we can ever fully understand, of what Christ has done for us. But also that you can walk in the assurance of your salvation. That you can never ever doubt again after this series that what was accomplished on the cross was accomplished for you and was fully done. I was reading this book, I I said I'd mention it, it's called um, Rejoicing in Christ by, um, the author's name is Michael Reed. Anyone ever read that book? Michael, write this down. It's an honesty. Unbelievable book. Rejoicing in Christ. And I was, I was reading it last night. I actually, actually sent my dad a voicemail message. I read three pages of this book to him. My dad is suffering with Alzheimer's because as I read it, my heart was bursting. I was like, I, I, was, I wanted to run around the house and shout and declare his goodness. And I wanted to fall on my face and weep at the wonder of Christ. And I, I needed to share it. And so... I said to my mom, just play this to my dad. Play this to him over and over again because this describes the beauty, the wonder, the glory, the selflessness, the mind-defibrillating, extraordinary nature of our King, that is Jesus Christ. And you see, when we think we're okay, we think He's okay. We think, well, God, I mean, God, we know He's, He's like us, just bigger. And obviously a little, and obviously better, but, but, he's, but he's, he's, he's altogether different from us. To understand what it means to be holy, to understand what it means to be 
perfectly right. Not to have a simple thought or a selfish thought. Not to have an attitude that cuts against the nature and the character of God that is inherent in us because of our fallen nature. And to know that that standing is imputed to us. So that when we stand before God, He sees nothing of our sinful nature. Nothing of our mistakes and our, and our failings. That's the standard He sees. When you stand before the living God, He sees Christ. Christ. And Lord Jesus, we revel in the wonder of what You've done for us as fallen people. Fallen and broken. Lost to depravity. If left, if you hadn't put Adam and Eve out of that garden and we had lived forever, our depravity would have eventually consumed us so that even hell would have seemed like a deliverance. The great gift that you give us is to open our eyes to understand that we need a Savior. To put faith into us to receive you, Lord Jesus, as that Savior. To recognize even as Adam and Eve lived in that garden and literally sinned in disobedience to you and changed all of humanity. So Christ walked in obedience in that garden and laid down His life upon that cross where the first Adam's sin brought death Second Adam's sacrifice brings life. And we see you upon that cross, Lord Jesus, bearing our sin, our pain, our punishment, that we might have vindication, justification, freedom, righteous status. And we love you and we adore you and we worship you today. And Lord, I pray if there are some here this morning that have been on a journey with you and, and have, have even known and received you as their, their Lord and their Savior. But Lord, you're beginning to draw them now into the depth and the wonder of who you are and what you've accomplished for us. I pray where we've had a, a Coke-like version of our sinfulness, of our lostness, of our blindness, that you would open our eyes today to see that we are, without Christ, utterly lost, utterly blind, utterly unable to save ourselves. And friend, if you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've come in here this morning, maybe you've been in church many times, Maybe you've come along with somebody. Maybe you're visiting out of curiosity. And God has spoken to you today. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. And maybe you are ready, ready this morning to put your trust in Jesus Christ. It might be that it's going to take you some time as we go through the series. But if this morning you are already ready, Today is the day of your salvation. Then I want to give you the opportunity to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. It's not ritual. It's not membership of a church. It's not learning the books of the Bible. It's the surrender of our will. It's to come in faith and say, I trust in that finished work of Christ and that alone for my salvation. I trust nothing else because nothing else can save me. Which means if you can do that today, the Spirit of God has been working on you and causing your heart to be stirred. And as we close our eyes today, friends, I want you to just raise your hand up and raise it high and say, Rob, I, I want to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior this morning. I want to be born again by the Spirit of God. If that's you, just raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. And just keep them up for a second more just so I can see everyone whose hands have been raised. Father, you see the hands that are raised here this morning. Ah, oh, God, 
you must love us, Lord God. How much you must love us to do this for us, Lord God. To send your only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not die, but have eternal life. So pray with me this morning, friends. Thank you, Father. Why don't we all pray together? Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Son when we least deserve the gift. Thank you for his death upon the cross in my place. And that because of his obedience and his sacrifice, I can have the free gift of eternal life. The forgiveness of my sins. And I thank you that I am born again. I'm no longer the son of Adam. I am the son of God. Born again by the Holy Spirit. Set free from sin. I belong to you. And from this day forward, I ask you to lead me completely. I consecrate myself. Set myself apart to live for you that you might have the glory. Thank you for my salvation. I pray that I never doubt what you have done for me and who I am in you. Thank you, Lord. We're going to finish with a song of worship.